Luke chapter 24. Let's begin in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to, to them like idle tales. And they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did, they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going and indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he, was, as he sat at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did, our heart, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Let's pray together. Father, we just rejoice in this day. We thank you so much for what it means to us. And 
what it means to you, Lord, because of what it means to us. We pray, Lord, that you would use these verses for your purposes, Lord. We thank you that we get to celebrate the Lord Jesus' resurrection as a family together in unity. Bless this time and use it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ today, and as I said earlier, we do that every day. But today has been set aside specifically to celebrate his bodily resurrection. He's not in that tomb. I've been to the tomb. And of course, we don't know for sure if this is the one, but it's very, very likely that it was that tomb. And I've been in that tomb. It's not, he's not there. He's alive. And one word comes to mind related to the resurrection of Christ, and it's the word victory. Victorious. He was victorious over death. He was victory, victorious over hell, over the demonic realm. And what's amazing is that he shares his victory with us. We get to have victory because of his victory. And the Lord Jesus' resurrection is victorious. Uh, it's an expression of God's victory. But it's not just that. It's also evidence. It's very powerful evidence. You ever talk to anybody that's a skeptic? The first thing you need to ask them is, are you skeptical of your skepticism? That's the first thing. When they're proud about being a skeptic, you need to ask them, are you skeptical of your skepticism? That usually throws them for a loop a little bit, gets the conversation going. But there, there, there is a tremendous amount of evidence in the Christian faith. And many believers don't know of all the evidence. And if they don't know it, it's hard for them to convey that over to other people. But the resurrection is evidence that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was accepted by the Father. It's been said that the resurrection is the Father's amen to Jesus' words, it is finished on the cross. It was validation that his death was accepted by the Father. Because remember, that death wasn't by accident. Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. God knew that that was going to be the way that he would secure a relationship with mankind. And so that sacrifice was an expression of God's wrath upon Christ. And it pleased him. To, to bruise him in the way that he did. Because the wrath needed to happen. Just as we sang this morning, it's an expression of his love, but it's also an expression of his justice. God had to find a way to be just, to express his justice, and to express his love all at the same time, and the cross is the answer. So we know by the resurrection that that, that that was accepted by the Father. It's also evidence that the power of sin has been broken in our lives. Because the resurrection power of Christ is available to every Christian who relies upon that power and upon that grace that's available to live the life that we're called to live. The world out there thinks that freedom is doing whatever they want. But that's a lie. Freedom is doing what we're meant to do. That's true freedom. God gives us the power to have the kind of life that's been, that is pleasing to Him. That's freedom. It's also evidence that He has authority over death. If Jesus can conquer death for himself, he can conquer death for every Christian. The fact that he conquered death demonstrates that he can conquer death for me. That death won't, isn't the final say. It's the enemy of every person in this world, death. Jesus has the victory over death. And he gives us the victory over death. It's also evidence that he can raise us from the dead and give us new bodies. We're told in scripture that we don't know what we'll be like, but we know when we see him, we'll be like he is. So we're going to have a body like his body was. He ate, he drank, he could disappear and appear. We see that in our passage this morning. 
We're going to have a body like that, those of us that know Christ. And so he gives us so much victory because of the resurrection. But this morning I want to look at the risen Christ a little differently in the topic of his resurrection. I want to look at his personal care for two disciples. I want to look at his shepherd's heart that he expresses to two believers. So I want to look at four observations from the risen Savior today. You know, the Lord Jesus could have been anywhere on that day. If you were had raised from the dead, what would you be doing? I mean, the Lord Jesus could have been anywhere, but he chose to be with these two disciples. He chose to love. He chose to serve. He chose to continue to give his life away as he did in his public ministry. So I want to look at how he dealt with these two believers. Let's start in verse 13 of chapter 24. We're told in verse 13, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. Emmaus was a little, you couldn't even call it a city. That's why we're told in the verse that it was a village. It was a very, very small town. Anyone here from a very, very small town? A few hands. I'm from Modesto. I grew up in Modesto, not really a small town. Some of you have told me from cities where you remember when they first got the first street light. You know, when they first they left the stop sign behind and they put a, finally a, a street light where, where people could get tickets. <laughs> Probably wasn't too far after that that they put cameras up or something in that town. They don't, they don't have a movie theater, but they got cameras on the red light uh, there. But, but this was a very small town northwest of Jerusalem, and we're told in the verse, seven miles away from Jerusalem. And then he says, and they walked together of all these, uh, and they talked together rather of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed in reason that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So my first observation this morning related to the risen Christ is that Jesus draws near to us in our greatest time of need. Again, he could have been anywhere on this day. He could have been talking to Peter. I mean, I know he made other appearances that day. Don't get me wrong. But he could have been doing anything on that day. He chose to be with these two disciples. And it's noteworthy who he spent time with that day. These weren't one of the twelve. We're not even told their names except one. We're told it was Cleopas. And the other one, we're not even told their name. They weren't even from a significant city. They were from a village. And they didn't have much faith, if any at all. They were, they were discouraged. They were downtrodden. They were, their minds were reeling. They were confused. They were so many things that we are as believers at different times in our lives. And the risen Savior comes to us and ministers to us. And it, and it, it overwhelms me to see how gracious Jesus is in his public ministry, but also subsequent to him raising from the dead. How gracious he is. That's just who he is. Maybe you're here and you're a disciple today of Jesus Christ. And you need to be reminded that Jesus is always going to be gracious with you. He's not going to look at your need and your struggles. He's not going to kick you when you're down. He's not going to capitalize on your weakness and rub your nose in your mistakes. He's going to encourage you. He's going to give you what you need. He's going to be appropriate with you. Or maybe you're not a disciple here today. Maybe you don't know Christ yet. I want to introduce you a little bit to this Savior that you may have heard about. You don't really know him. 
You've maybe heard about him. You've maybe read a little bit in the Bible. But look at the heart of the Lord Jesus here. He's coming to people that are struggling on the day of his resurrection. So here they were reasoning together. They're talking things out. You ever walk and talk with somebody and you're kind of going back and forth and you're just, you're, you're, maybe you have a dispute or a debate or something and, and you have plenty of time and you just, you, you don't get, you know, you don't get to the point right away. You know, in marriages, you know, a lot of times the men are saying to the wives, you know, okay, bottom line me. You know, you're giving me way too deep my details here. You're making my mind swim. Just bottom line me. And one of the ways that men learn how to love their wives is to let them give them all the details. And for us to give them details. Maybe you're single here and you need to, as a man, you need to, you need to know that. That's coming. Uh, but they had plenty of time, seven miles, to talk this out and to give each other all the details. You give me your theory. Okay, this is what I think happened. No, you, what do you think happened? Well, I think it happened a little bit different than what you're saying. I think this happened. I think those women were, uh, you know, they were, had low blood sugar. They were doing, you know, they were on a low carb diet or something. I don't know. But, but they, you know, they have all, they kind of had all these theories. They couldn't wrap their minds around what had happened. You ever face something in life where it just doesn't make sense? You're looking at everything as clearly as you can possibly look at it. And the things that just are contradicting each other and you're trying to grapple with it, you're trying to navigate through it, you just can't understand what God is up to. That's the mindset of these believers. And that's the mindset that Jesus loves to deal with, to love to engage. He can handle your doubts and my doubts. He can handle our confusion. He can handle our discouragement and our depression. He can handle every need that we have. Now notice the Lord Jesus interfered with their vision in verse 16. He says, but their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. This is the second observation I want to make of the risen Savior. He reveals what is appropriate for us. The original language is clear. There's something that kept their eyes from without, from causing them to be able to recognize him. He did look different. But we see that in other places in the New Testament. He did look different, but there was something that he knew that they needed. They needed to not see him for who he was at that moment. He was doing something greater. And so you ask, well, what's the reasoning for that? Because he could have just revealed himself just how he was, right? He could have revealed himself as the risen Christ. Immediately they would have worshipped him. But see, he knew there was something greater that needed to occur in their hearts and in their lives. He knew that that wouldn't have been the best for them because he wanted to build their faith in God's word which he was about to reveal to them these two disciples wouldn't always have him physically around they wouldn't always have him revealed to them in his fullness but they would always have his word and they would always have the life of faith to which God calls every single one of us and he knows that that is the superior life remember what he said On this very day, later he's going to say, blessed are those who believe and don't see. More blessed are those who don't see and believe. We have a bigger blessing associated with walking with him hand in hand by faith instead of by sight. I always want to say I walk by faith. I I like to walk by sight and call it walking by faith. He says, no, that's not true. And then he changes circumstances to force me to walk by faith. 
And I think he's working in my life to get me to where I never have to go through any discomfort, any trials in life, and everything will be great. And he says, that's not how you grow in, my, in a relationship with me. You never become like Christ if you don't have to trust him when you don't understand. There's so many times, in the, and we saw it at good, the Good Friday service, when Jesus didn't understand something. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There was a legitimate question that he had. Now, we can't go through this life thinking we're immune to not understanding what God's doing in our lives. And somehow Christ has to deal with that. But I don't have to deal with that as a believer. I have to believe. I have to trust him even when I don't understand. So maybe you're a disciple here. And you want him to reveal himself a certain way. Maybe you want him to show himself so strongly in a situation to overpower the situation with a revelation of of, of him or working aggressively in a certain way. But he says that may not be what's best for you. What's best for you is to have faith in my word, to trust me, to walk hand in hand. And so he may have his word burn in in, in our hearts like these disciples here. And he knows that's what's best. That's what is going to make us more like Christ. So he doesn't just reveal us, reveal himself how we would expect him to reveal himself to us. Verse 17. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? See, he knew they were sad. It wasn't just by hearing them. He knew their hearts. He knows our hearts. He knows when we're sad. He cares when we're sad. He cares when we go through everything that we go through. Again, here's the risen Savior. He could have been anywhere, but he is walking alongside two disciples that are from an insignificant city or village who were sad, and he wants to help them. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? <laughs> what things? Did he know? Of course he knew it happened to him. But he's wanting to draw out from them information. He wants them to communicate to them because it's best for them. And they were shocked that he had never, he hadn't heard of those things. It's like someone at the end of the day on September 11th, 2001, comes to you and says, hey, what's going on? What do you mean what's going on? I mean, it's 9-11. I mean, it's, I mean, you heard that what, that what happened in New York and the Pentagon? And no, I haven't heard that. Where have you been today? That's what you would say. Where have you been? You've been on Mars today? Did you take a little ship up for the day and get I mean, another planet? I mean, that's what it would have been like. Everything in Jerusalem was stirred up related to what had happened. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God, and all the people. Now we can get an idea of where they were coming from and their perspective by what they mention there in the verse. Because he says, Jesus of Nazareth. It's focusing on his physical, where he was from in a geographical sense. That he was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. Yes, he was a prophet. There's nothing communicating that he was the Son of God. There's nothing communicating that he was the Messiah. But he was, and he is. They came short of saying that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, but they'll come to that conclusion in a little while. He continues to inform Jesus on what had happened in verse 20. He says, And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. 
Indeed, besides all of this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him he did not see. So he's continuing to inform Jesus on what happened. And notice in verse 21, the past tense description there. He says, but we were, but we were hoping. We were hoping. What was their hope in? See, they thought the Messiah was going to be a political Messiah. Because Rome was ruling over them. And they thought that the Messiah was going to come, because they read other scriptures that talk about him setting up his kingdom forever. And they didn't understand he was going to come twice. Some Jewish scholars back then even believed there were two Messiahs. Because they couldn't reconcile how one was to be cut off and the other one was to, to reign on David's throne forever. They didn't understand there was going to be two times that he came. So they were thinking it was gonna, he was going to come and redeem Israel. Even on the day of his ascension, the disciples asked him, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still were thinking that there was going to be a, a, a political Messiah. And then they didn't believe the women in verse 22. In that culture, a woman could not even testify in a court of law and have it be valid. Jesus took the, the women and raised them up. He appeared first to women for a reason. And he, he, he liberated women in many, many ways and, and, and did so very effectively. But they didn't believe these women. They thought that they were just hallucinating or who knows what, what they thought. And then he said that some of us went, which is Peter and John were told in other scriptures. They went to the tomb. They didn't see the Lord Jesus. So he's saying, we, we have nothing to base our hope in. Verse 25, then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? The third observation of the risen Savior is that he is willing to rebuke us for not believing his word. And that's what's interesting about this. Notice he doesn't rebuke them for not believing the women. He doesn't say, hey, you should have believed those women. You know, I dispatched my angels, you know, and and they appeared. What do you think that they were doing there? They were telling the truth. You should have believed what those women say. He doesn't do any of that. Why? Because they had something way more proficient than the women's testimony. They had the word of God. Something far more trustworthy is God's word over anybody's testimony. Our testimonies are powerful and we should share them. But ultimately, our faith is based on the word of God, not any personal experience that anyone has experienced. He has revealed what he's revealed for a reason in his word. He knows we need it. He knows that it's sufficient for our time in need. So maybe he's spoken to you about something. And maybe you're struggling with believing something. And he says, you need to trust my word. What does my word say about it? Have you searched my scriptures to see whether or not what I've said is is binding upon your life? Have you seen whether or not your situation is applicable to this certain set of scriptures? Have you sought me out in my word? My word is sufficient. 
And if you don't know, maybe, maybe you, you don't know if your situation is relevant in terms of, or God's word speaks to your specific situation. Ask somebody who knows the Lord. Ask someone who's walked with the Lord a while or a leader or something to find out what he says. But once you understand what his word says, his expectation is that you would trust in it and believe in it. These disciples were Jewish. They had the scriptures their whole lives and Jesus knew it. He called them on the carpet, so to speak, that they weren't believing what the scriptures said. And, and they were, he didn't have any problem doing that. Now, Jesus gives them a Bible study. <laughs> and he says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I want you to notice all the word, the repeating word all there. You see it twice in verse 27. All the prophets. And he expounded to them all all the scriptures. Look back at verse 25. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. He revealed everything to them. Remember, this is seven miles. You ever walked seven miles? I thought about walking seven miles just so I could experience that, and, but I didn't think about it too long. <laughs> Next channel. Uh, but I've walked, I've, walked, I've walked a long way. I don't know if I've ever walked seven miles. Some people go on those walkathons, you know, when you're a kid and you're, and I never did that either. I was even lazy then. I'm like, why can't we do a bikeathon or something where you can get somewhere faster? You know, I never was into that. But seven miles is a long ways to walk. And the Lord Jesus is the Word of God. He knew that this, the, the Bible, obviously, inside and out, He is the Word, right? So He began at Moses, He went and He expounded on all the prophets. He took advantage of it. And I want to read a few scriptures, have them put up on the screen here. I want to start in Genesis chapter 3. I want to go through eight of these passages. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 says, So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So all the way back to the garden. The first prophecy related to the Messiah. Now he said he went, started in Moses. Okay, so he's going all the way back to the beginning here. Eve had sinned, Adam had sinned. Right away, God had prophesied about a solution to that. He said to them, in the day that you eat of that fruit, that forbidden fruit, you will die. They didn't die physically. If they died physically, we wouldn't be here. They died spiritually. And they remained that way, but God had a solution. He promised the Messiah. But then God spoke to Abraham and gave a a promise to him in Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac. He passes the test. He doesn't, God doesn't cause him to do that. He's willing to do it. God provides another sacrifice. And then he repeats this promise that his descendants will be as the sands of the seashore. So because of Christ coming, we have our faith in Christ. We become sons of faith. We become sons of Abraham in that sense. 
and that all the billions of Christians in this world and have existed are all spiritual sons of Abraham. But that only could have happened through the coming of the Messiah. So that's another prophecy. Then uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. That's a capital P there. (laughs) A prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. So he's saying there's going to come a prophet and you're going to listen to him. That's he's talking about the coming Messiah. Then in Micah 5, 2, we're told that where Jesus would be born. He said in Micah 5, 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting There were two Bethlehems. You may not know this. There were two Bethlehems in Israel at the time. There was one in the north where Jesus would be raised in the Galilee area. And there was one down south by Jerusalem in another Bethlehem there. And he nailed the exact Bethlehem. It wasn't just Bethlehem. It was which Bethlehem? And and Jesus was born in Bethlehem even though his family was and was, he was raised in Nazareth. So another prophecy about the Messiah. Then in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So he would be born of a virgin. And Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, demonstrating that the fulfillment of that through the Virgin Mary would be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And then talking about David's descendant ruling on his throne forever in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God prophesied that there would be come one on David's throne that would, his kingdom would never have an end. That was a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus. Then a little bit longer of one in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 5. He is despised and rejected by men. It's talking about the Lord Jesus. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The whole, chapter, the whole entire chapter of Isaiah 53 is about the Lord Jesus. I am positive that the Lord Jesus went through that prophecy and that whole chapter. And then lastly, in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, today we're celebrating the fulfillment of this verse where David wrote by the Spirit, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Talking about physical decay. So you ask, what evidence is there? Maybe you're here and you're not a believer. and You want evidence. How do we know that Jesus is the Messiah? How do we know that what you're saying is true about Him? Jesus, by His Holy Spirit, painted a portrait of Himself in the Old Testament. A beautiful, vivid, specific portrait so that when he came, nobody could say, is this the one? Nobody could say, we don't know if this is enough evidence or not. He said, this is, I'm giving you this so that you can know when he comes that this is the one 
that I have promised. People want evidence all the time. There's, there's hundreds of prophecies related to the Bible and the, and the Lord Jesus. So if you're here today, you need to recognize these scriptures were written. Not one of them was written sooner than 700 years before the birth of Christ. And many of them were a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And a few of them were actually 1400 years before the birth of Christ. That's incredible evidence. We don't have a blind faith. We have a faith based on evidence, on his word. And even if no one out there ever told us that they had been saved or they had experienced salvation or their, their life had been changed, doesn't matter because we have his word. And God expects us to believe his word above all experience, even our own experience. And he, causes, and he calls us to accountability related to it. Verse 28. Then they drew near to the, to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. The fourth and final observation of the risen Savior is Jesus waits for our appropriate response to his word. He could have just invited himself over. He did that with Zacchaeus. <laughs> you know, he has no problem doing that. But he was teaching them something. He was revealing God's word to them. He was waiting for a response, the appropriate response. He would have kept going. If they hadn't invited him, he would have kept going. But he waited to see their response to the effect of God's word on their hearts. They had the correct response. Their response was, hey, come with us. They sensed that there was something different about this man. And they were completely blessed by it. Now, with related to us, he convicts us by his word, and he waits for our proper response. He doesn't force himself on us. He takes us a certain distance. He shows us his word, and he expects our response to be a certain way, but he's not going to force himself on us. He wants to draw closer to us, but he's waiting so many times for us to draw near to him first. James chapter 4, verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Those disciples were drawing near to Jesus, and he drew near to them. So that's a great encouragement. Now he continues in verse 30. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us? While he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us. That's what God's word does. It burns in our hearts. There's a supernatural effect that God's word has on our hearts. It convicts us of our sin. It comforts us when we need comfort. It provides hope for us when we need hope. It gives us perspective. It gets our eyes off of our current circumstances on to the bigger picture. There's always a bigger picture that God has in mind related to our lives. And their response was, come near to us, the Lord Je- you know, to the Lord Jesus. He came near to them and he revealed himself. Now notice in verse 31 that he opened their eyes. He took, he would never, this would, wasn't normal that the person that's a guest would be breaking bread in a home. That would be, that would be presumptuous. That'd be rude, basically, to come do that. But he knew what he was doing. He didn't care about the culture and the, you know, all of those things. He was doing something greater than that. 
And he broke bread. Now people guess, well, why is it when he broke bread that their eyes were open? I don't know. He decided when to remove those blinders from their eyes. He had broken bread many times. He had seen that before. For these disciples were probably with him when he fed the multitudes and blessed the bread and so forth. But their, their eyes were opened. And, and then they said that their hearts burned within them. And I think that that's a good reminder for us that we need to have soft hearts towards the Lord related to his word. When, he, when, he, when we sense that burning in our hearts related to his word, we need to, as I said before, we need to properly respond to his word. When he shows us something, we need to act upon it. We shouldn't just file it away, okay, I'll obey that later. No, we need to obey it right now. Because when we harden our hearts against his word, it increases that hardness. And before you know it, our hearts can be so hardened that we don't sense any burning at all. And so that's, that's a good exhortation for us. Verse 33. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So they were letting the disciples know what had happened back in Jerusalem. And they told, this is the two disciples, and they told about the things which had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So as we think about Resurrection Sunday, we're celebrating his life being raised from the dead. He conquered death for us. He showed us that death can't hold him. There is no more enemy of death in our, in our lives that, that know the Lord. When we go to be with him, he refers to it as sleep. He's taken the sting out of death. We're told that in Scripture. So we need to rejoice. But he wants to live a different, have us live a different kind of life. He wants to live his life through our lives. And he, and he does that as, he, as we yield to him and, he, and we abide in him. He bears fruit through our lives. But he wants to deal with us in these very loving ways. So the four things. Draws near to us in our greatest time of need. He reveals what is appropriate for us. Three, he is willing to rebuke us for not believing his word. And four, he waits for our appropriate response to his word. He still does that today. He's still alive. He's still the risen Savior. He still deals with us that way. He's still patient with us when we fail. All of us fail at different times. But he comes in and brings encouragement. And like I've said so many times, when we fail and fall short, we need to fall towards him instead of falling away from him. When we fail, we need to go to him immediately. The longer we have that time not in fellowship with him and not in fellowship with his people, the more vulnerable we are to the enemy's attacks. He doesn't want that. So he's the the victorious, risen Savior who has a shepherd's heart. Maybe you never thought of him having a shepherd's heart or expressing that shepherd's heart after his resurrection. We've just seen it. Insignificant disciples from insignificant village at a time that he could have been anywhere in this world. But he chose to be with them. He chose to walk those seven miles. If it were me, I'd probably meet them there. You know, I'll just disappear and meet you there and you know, tell you everything once we get there. But he walked with them and he's walking with us. So let's enjoy today's victory by celebrating who he is, that he is a compassionate, loving Savior who loves to help us in our time of need. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you for how you are a loving Savior. Thank you for your victory. Thank you that you're there for us even when we're sad even when we're discouraged. 
And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe your word, to trust what your word says. Thank you for the firm foundation that it is. Thank you for your victory that you have given us. Help us to live a life that's worthy of you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.